who we are and, and why life is the way that it is. Why there is so much pain. Why there is so much suffering and oppression. The word of God reveals to us a cosmic battle between the holiness of the creator and the unholiness of rebellious creatures. It also reveals to us how the creator in his great mercy and great grace has sovereignly intervened on behalf of his creation to make peace and to seek reconciliation with his enemies. Not because he fears his enemies or that he fears losing the war. No, there is no war for God to lose. God always wins. He is wholly sovereign and wholly supreme in all things and all ways. He does this because of his grace, because of his love, because of who he is. But how does God do this? How does God make peace with those who have abused and desecrated his image? How do we become friends with God? How do we find ourselves partaking of the victory of God rather than suffering the defeat of those who are rightly judged? Well, to answer those questions, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Judges 6. If you need a, a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the seats around you. Our passage this morning starts in verse 33 of chapter 6, and we will go to the end of chapter 7. Our text is part 2 of three of the Gideon cycle. And in this portion of the cycle, we read about the battle of Gideon against the Midianites. We'll do as we have been doing these past few weeks. We'll look at the text first. We'll read through it. We'll come to an understanding of what is going on and what is being communicated to us. And then we'll look at the three things that God gives Gideon. And as we do so, we'll also consider how God gives us the same things as he gave Gideon except with one key difference. So, without further ado, let's begin with verse 33 of Judges 6. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So all the people that were listed as the oppressors in verse 3, earlier in the chapter of chapter 6, all those oppressors, they are now gathered, they've now amassed themselves in the Valley of Jezreel. And, and we should be familiar with the Valley of Jezreel. We were there in Judges 4 and, and 5. So we can see this geographical um, emphasis of the author of, of Judges. We're, we're spending a lot of time in the northern part of Israel. And as we continue, uh, we'll, we'll shift our um, geographical location. But right now we're in the Valley of, we're still in the Valley of Jezreel. Verse 34. But the spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpets. And the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers through all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So, so the oppressors of verse 3, they have massed together. Now Israel has come together. But notice what happens first in verse 34. It says, the spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon. The, the gathering of Gideon's army is connected with the spirit of God. The assembly of Israel's military is not related to some charisma that Gideon possessed or some influence that Gideon had. Rather, the assembly of Israel is uh, specifically connected to Yahweh. It is Yahweh alone that the men answered the trumpet's call. It's because of his spirit that the people of Israel have rallied, rallied around uh, Gideon in his trumpet's call. Yet, though Gideon is clothed in the spirit, Gideon still hesitates. 
he's still unsure about this calling by God. And perhaps it is due to ignorance of exactly who Yahweh is. He's, he's unfamiliar with Yahweh. Maybe Gideon is wondering, well, exactly how sovereign is Yahweh? Is he even capable of fulfilling his word? After all, as the author of Judges told us at the beginning of his book, he t- remember he told us that th- these, this generation, they are people who did not know Yahweh, who they do not know the wonders, the good works that he did with Moses and, and Joshua. So, so Gideon, he's unfamiliar with Yahweh. So in his hesitancy, Gideon seeks a, another sign. Verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So it wasn't just one sign, it was two that Gideon asks for. And you think that the first would have been enough, right? It's one thing, and we see this all the time, especially in Wisconsin, where the surface, if it's like a metal surface or a different surface in the area around it, in the morning, if there's enough water vapor in the air and that surface cools faster, water will condense on that surface and maybe not the surface around it. But for a wool fleece to have water condense on it to the point to where you squeeze it and you're able to fill a, a bowl of water, that's a whole nother thing. It's one thing for the top of the wool to be like a little wet, but for it to be so damp that when you squeeze it, you're able to fill a, a bowl of water and the ground around it to be dry, that's significant. That's clearly an act of, of God. And likewise, the other way. Well, if the ground is wet, uh, a, a fleece of wool would be absorbing that water around it. The, the natural properties would lend to that fleece of wool to absorb the water that's on, on the ground, at least a, a little bit, but it didn't happen. So Gideon, he asked for these two signs, and God in his great patience gives them to Gideon. Now we need to keep in mind what Gideon is doing here. Right? Often this, this, this text is, is misused, it's taken out of context. Right? He's not seeking the will of God here. We, we already know the will of God. God has already made his will known to Gideon. He, he's to take the men of Israel and, and go in and fight the Midianite army. He knows the will of God. But nor is this an act of faith on Gideon. Seeking the sign is not an act of faith. Some will say, you need to have the faith of Gideon and you need to ask for signs from God. No, this isn't good, what Gideon is doing here. This is not something that we want to mimic. See, Gideon's request here is rooted in unbelief. These are signs born out of doubt and lack of faith. These are a mark against Gideon. This is a stain on the character of Gideon. It is just one of the many judges of the book of Judges that the author is highlighting. These, aren't, these, these are not fantastic people. These are not people that we want to mimic, right? Again, only Deborah is the only judge that really has any type of character, any type of portrayal that's like, yeah, she's the righteous one. But these other judges, they all have flaws, and this is one of Gideon's flaws, his lack of belief. He is hesitant to believe the word of God. But God is gracious. God is patient. 
And even though Gideon, he is quick and willing to try to find a way out of this battle. Right? He, he doesn't want to be involved in this. That's why he's asking all these signs. Is that he doesn't want to be used by God. But God won't let him. God has called him. God is sovereign. God will use him. God's people may have little interest in preserving themselves, but God is fully faithful to his promises, and he will preserve his people, regardless of their faithless wills and doubtful hearts. Let's continue verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and, and camped beside the spring of Harad, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Mora or, or Mount Mora in the valley. So they're not on the mountain, they're near the mountain, they're in the valley that's going to come into play later. So, so the author now gives us a, a, a map of the battle, the lay of the land. All right, and I have a, a map for you um, that you guys can look at. Hopefully it looks all right. Yeah, they, yeah that's, that's good enough. Um, so you can see Mount Tabor just to the southwest uh, of the Sea of Galilee and then Mount Mora where the yellow is. That's where the battle occurs. So now the author has given us this lay of the land. He's telling us how the armies are all set up. But there's a problem with Gideon's army. Verse 2. Yahweh said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into the hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. See, th this isn't new. right? This idea that, that Yahweh is concerned about his people uh, having too much of their own power, too much self-esteem, we could say, uh, because, because if they feel like they did this in their own hand, well, that, that's concerning. That's what's going to lead to idolatry. In fact, Yahweh has already warned his people of this thinking in the law, in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, where, where Yahweh told Moses and his people, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember Yahweh your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Therefore, God is going to set forth a, 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 a two-phase method to shrink the military might of Gideon. Verse 3, Yahweh continues and says, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful, whoever is trembling, let him go home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people return and 10,000 remain. Two-thirds of the army are scared. They don't want to fight. It makes you wonder why they even showed up. But two-thirds of the army, that's, that's a lot. 22,000, they hurried home. They left. The door was open. They took it. Now, this, again, is not unusual. This is in keeping with the law. This is in keeping with the Torah. All right, Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, the section of the law that deals with warfare, it reads... The officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. But even after Gideon's army is reduced by two-thirds, it's still too big. Ten thousand, that's too many. So God has a, another phase to shrink, to shrink the force down. Verse 4, Yahweh said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water. Take them down to the spring, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. Any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and Yahweh said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. So two hands down on the, gr on the ground, head by the water, lapping just like a dog. 
Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And, and the number of those who laugh, putting their hands to their mouths, is 300 men. So these are the men who are, who are, who are knelt down, and they're using their hands to bring the water to their mouth. 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. That is like a dog. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and the trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So with this second phase of reducing the military force, 9,700 men are sent home. 97% of that remaining one-third God sends home. Now, many have tried to delineate why one group was sent home versus the other, right? They, they, they tried to explain this was a test, a test of alertness. But again, we must not speak where Scripture does not speak. Just as with Gideon in the wine press. Remember we talked about how people use that to say, Gideon's a, a coward. He, he, he's being wise. He wants to feed his family. He doesn't want his food taken away, right? Scripture doesn't speak. So we must not, for the sake of babbling or for the sake of novelty, become imaginative and create fanciful reasons as to why God um, sent one group home and not the other, especially when God doesn't tell us why. It does not say that all the men at the same time drank water as if all 10,000 were, were drinking water without anyone watching over them, right? That just doesn't make sense. Uh, one, you'd have to think, well, how, how big is this spring for can 10,000 men be drinking water all at, at once to where they have to be alert? Probably not. I'm sure they're taking turns drinking water. If they're taking turns drinking water, you would presume, especially with a, an army nearby, they have people watching, taking turns. Right? That, that would just make more sense. That, that, that's the logical reasoning. Also, how would Gideon know who's lapping like a dog and who's bringing water to his mouth if they're all doing 10,000 men all at once? Have you looked at a crowd of 10,000 men and tried to keep track of how they're tracking water? It just doesn't work. Just logically, it doesn't fit. And also, it's not like God's trying to create a highly trained elite force here. He doesn't need a highly trained elite force, and we'll see this as it plays plays out. All he needs is a small army to make it clear that Yahweh is the one who did the fighting, that Yahweh is the one who won the battle. Now, granted, Scripture doesn't say, and maybe it was a test of alertness. Maybe it was, right? The first one clearly was a test of courage, and maybe it was a test of alertness, but Scripture doesn't tell us. It could be purely arbitrary. It could be purely by the will of God. God knew, this is how I'm going to get my 300. That's the number I want, and this is how it's going to work out, and that's that. And that's all Scripture tells us. And that's where we should leave it. It's one thing to speculate about it, like in conversation, when we're, when we're talking about it, but to say it's a test of alertness and then apply it to our lives as it is a edifying truth to us is a bit much. Because again, Scripture doesn't speak to it. So for whatever reason, this is the method that God gave uh, Gideon to get his number to the 300. So let's read on and see how God uses the 300 to give Gideon victory over the Midianite army. Verse 9. That same night, Yahweh said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, 
and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So Pura means tub, right? And so for whatever reason, this might not be an accurate description of actually what happened, but in my head, I think of Sam and Frodo, right? I think of Sam, like a tub, with Frodo on this quest. Frodo, who's hesitant to go, Gideon's hesitant to go, and, and God's given him so pure. It's almost like Pura is going with him to keep him, to encourage him, to, to keep him company, to keep him faithful to, to the calling. Again, to be clear, that's, that's my own, like, taking literary fiction and applying it here because of what Pura means. And I don't know if Tolkien got that image of Sam from Pura. Maybe he did, maybe he, he didn't. Anyway, I digress. I apologize. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east, they lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that's on the seashore in abundance. So remember, Gideon had 32,000 men. That's a lot of people. It's not countless, though. This military might that's in front of him seems bigger than that. And so that, that force has been reduced by two-thirds and then 97% of that one-third. So it's been reduced by a lot. And so he only has 300 men, and now before him he sees this sea uh, of countless enemies that are looking to destroy him. And he's got 300 men. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold... I dreamed a dream. And behold, a, a cake of barley, bread, tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for Yahweh has given the hosts of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Right? So the jars, right, upside down, so the torches in them. 300 men walking around with torches completely exposed, you're going to be seen in the night. But with the torches in the jars, the ground in front of you is going to be lit and people aren't going to be able to see it uh, from, from a distance. You'd have to be pretty, pretty close. Now, where was I? And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp. It shouts for Yahweh and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, so that's one company, each company's a hundred men, they went to the outskirts, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies, the other two companies that were with them, blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in the right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, Yahweh set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Bet-Shittah toward Zerarah, as far as the board of Abba-Mahala by Tabit. So imagine this. You're at camp. It's the midnight watch. You think everything's good. Everything's gravy. It's peaceful. It's a nice night. Maybe you're looking at the stars. And then all of a sudden, maybe you're asleep too. 
Actually, most of the armies probably sleep, but then all of a sudden, you see all these torches out of nowhere, just light up around you. And along with that, you hear all these jars breaking, almost as if the camp is being attacked, right? Jars are breaking. That sounds like an enemy is in the camp attacking it. Then you hear 300 men from the mountaintops yelling down into the valley saying, for Yahweh and for Gideon. And, and remember the dream, the, the people of the Midianite army, they know who Gideon is, right? The, the comrade's like, oh, this is clearly Gideon has been, we've been given into the hand, the hand of Gideon. So, so they know who they're fighting. They know who the, so they know that this enemy that's yelling, this is the army of Israel. And they think that they're in the camp. And, and the Israelites' army, Gideon's men, they just stay in their place. They stood in their place while the army below them is all confused. And Yahweh uses their own swords against them. Notice that we're not told that they're carrying swords. And presumably they are carrying swords, maybe in a, on their belt or, or something. But it's, it's not a piece of equipment that's highlighted in the text. The only sword that we hear is the sword of the enemy, which is being used against themselves because they think that they're being overrun. And, and, the, and in the darkness, they don't know who's who, and they're cutting each other down, and they flee. And so the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So presumably the other, uh, what, 32, close to 32,000 men that were sent home were gathered back, as well as probably other men to help chasing um, the defeated Midianite army. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as bet and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as bet and also the Jordan. And they captured two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They called Oreb, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zib, they killed at the winepress of Zib. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zib to Gideon across the Jordan. So, so here we see the author uh, explaining why the rock of Oreb and the winepress of Zib are, are called this, right? Obviously, they weren't called this before this. Uh, so the author is, at his time of the writing, uh, this rock of Oreb was known as that, and this winepress of Zib was known as that, and the author is giving background information as to why it's called that, because they were killed there, they were decapitated there, and their bodies presumably left there, buried there, because their heads were carried across the Jordan. So this is a victory that God has given Gideon in Israel. Victory has been won, has been secured, has been given to Gideon, has been given to Israel, and has been given to them by God, by God alone. It was given by God so that his people would no longer be oppressed, but more than that, so that they would turn from their idolatrous ways and walk in faithfulness as God desires them to do. So how did God do this? How did God take a rebellious, idolatrous people, especially uh, taking a, a man who is timid, who is hesitant, who wanted nothing to do with the will of God, how did God use such people to free them of their oppression? Well, he, he did it. It was he who did it wasn't really the people, but in God doing it, he gave Gideon and the people three things. And note that this is all God here. God gave Gideon his spirit. God gave Gideon a sign. And then God gave Gideon and the people victory by throwing the enemy army into confusion to where the army, the enemy was killing themselves. The, the Israelites were just standing there watching them. It was all Yahweh and even today, that truth remains. It is still all Yahweh. 
When we consider the questions that I posed at the beginning, how does God make peace with those who have abused and desecrated his image? How do we become friends with God? How do we find ourselves partaking of the victory of God rather than suffering the defeat of those rightly judged? Well, the answer is rooted in the three things that God gave Gideon in our text. Today, God gives us his spirit. God gives us a sign. God gives us victory. So let us look at each one of these to consider them more closely. Right, God gave Gideon his spirit, verse 34 of chapter 6. The spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon. Gideon needed the power of God. This was not something that Gideon could accomplish on his own. Likewise, you and I, in our own power, in our own charisma, influence, might, holiness, if we have any, which we don't, but we sometimes think we do, we cannot enter the kingdom of, of God without God first giving us his spirit. We cannot know freedom from our sin without the Holy Spirit first being given to us. Nor are we able to stay and remain in his presence in this age without the Spirit of Christ indwelling us. Jesus in John 3, verses 5 through 8, tells Nicodemus of this at night by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And it is by the Spirit that we are sealed until the fullness of the kingdom arrives, Ephesians 1, 13, 14. Paul writes, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And we do not make it to the end. We do not persevere, as we often talked about in Hebrews. We don't make it to the end because of ourselves, because of our own might, because of our own strength. We make it because of him. We make it because of his spirit, of his work and his will within us. Philippians 2.13, Paul says, For it is God who works in you. It is the creator who works in you. It is the almighty. It is the sovereign one. It is the judge who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The spirit was sent to us, given to us, specifically, just as it was sent to Gideon to help us. However, unlike Gideon, Gideon perhaps had the spirit for a moment. We have the spirit forever. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the paraclete. We spoke about this briefly last week. Again, this is where the term paraclete comes from, another helper, another encourager to be with you forever because he is the seal. And this is the key difference between the time of Gideon and our time today, or the difference between the old covenants and the new covenant. See, everything is, is better now. We ought to be familiar with this. Having gone through Hebrews, we ought to be familiar that in the new covenant, everything, everything is better. The priesthood, the kingdom, the blessings, it's all better. Because we have a better priest, a better king, a better prophet, a better sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything is better in the new covenant. Because the kingdom is here, even though the kingdom is here in part, and not in its fullness, it is still 
better. This is the joy of Christmas, the Advent season that we're getting ready to enter into. This is what's so joyous about it. It's because it's, it's all better. It's all eternal. It's all forever. All of which was ushered in by the coming of the Messiah, the birth of the Son of David, Jesus Christ. And, and the Spirit helps us by helping us discern the times that we live in, to discern the spirits of this age, to have the wisdom of God as imparted by God, 1 Corinthians 2, 12, 13, Paul writes, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Imagine the wisdom of, of God with Gideon, right? I got 300 men. You think the 300 men are wondering how are we going to take on this army? Like, you see them, you want us to do, do what? But they trusted Gideon for some reason. Spirit of God was involved somehow. Spirit of God was allowing the men to, to trust him in that moment. Worldly wisdom would have been like, nope, this isn't going to work. We need to reconsider this. Let's go home too and maybe get the other 32,000 back here and consider how we're going to do this. But this was the wisdom of God imparted to them by the Spirit's. And it is also the Spirit that gathers us. It is the Spirit that brings us together. Just as the Spirit that clothed Gideon gathered the people of Israel, the Spirit here today gathers us. We are here by the power and the work of the Spirit. See, the Spirit desires to be with himself. That makes sense. We are one body. The body desires to be with itself. Now, you and I, we may have many differences culturally, socially, ethnically. We may have many different opinions, some small, some great. And even though we have many different personalities, some fantastic, some not so fantastic, we still desire the fellowship of one another because the Spirit bears witness that we are brothers and sisters. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, we are brothers and sisters. We are family. But we're not only given the Spirit. Like Gideon, we are given a sign. Though the sign we are given is not because we asked for it, but because God himself gave it to us. And the sign I speak of is the sign of Jonah. Matthew 12, 39, 40, Jesus answered them because the Pharisees are there, they're all there, they're asking, give us a sign. Jesus tells them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And of course, this is talking about the resurrection. See, the resurrection is to us to believe in the teaching and the words of Christ. You wonder, why should I believe what Jesus has said? All that he has taught, why should I believe it? Why should I believe who he says he is? Why should I believe the promises that he has spoken? Well, the tomb, it's empty. The resurrection. How do we know that the cost that God asks us to make to follow his son is worth it? Jesus himself tells us, consider the cost. Well, I'm considering the cost. How do I know it's worth it? The tomb's empty. The resurrection. The sign of Jonah. Death has been conquered. Our great and last enemy has been conquered. Jesus, though he died a sinner, though he himself did not sin but bore the sin of all, he was vindicated in the resurrection. He was exalted 
to the right hand of the Father. Now, if we doubt the resurrection, if we have some hesitancy, as Gideon did with the first sign, we can go beyond the resurrection and we can consider the testimony of the apostles. Essentially, we consider the New Testament. See, the apostles themselves, they did works. They did signs and wonders. Acts 2.43, all came upon every soul, right? This is the early church right after Pentecost. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, right? Now, note this because people, I, I think, forget this. The wonders and signs were not done by everyone, right? It wasn't like we're making disciples and I'm teaching my disciple how to do wonders and signs. As the charismatic movement often would say, if you're going to be a believer, you got to do wonders and signs. Well, the early church wasn't doing that. Wonders and signs were done by the apostles, through the apostles, not everyone else. Everyone else was devoted to the teaching of the word by the apostles. And as the apostles taught, wonders and signs were being done through them. Signs and wonders that they did were not meant to be imitated. They were meant to show the authority and the power of Christ upon them. It was to show these are my apostles. They have the authority of heaven upon them to teach the gospel, to teach the accounts of Christ. Therefore, they should be listened to and trusted in that regard. So when you doubt, when you wonder about your faith, when you question the veracity of the word of God, ask yourself, what reason has God given you to believe? Has God given you prosperity and comfort so that you would believe? Has God given you understanding and knowledge of all things so that you may believe? Or has God given you the resurrection so that you may believe? Is the empty tomb enough? Even though you might lack prosperity, you might lack comfort, you might lack understanding and knowledge of all things holy, you know that the tomb is empty. You believe in the resurrection. You know how the apostles gave up everything to suffer and die for an empty tomb. Men who scattered on the night that Jesus was crucified, yet come back and they suffer horrific deaths. Especially Paul, who was on the fast track of success, who counted it all loss for a life of humiliation, suffering, and death. And these aren't men who merely died for what they believed, but they lived for what they believed. Right? It's easy to die for one's faith. It is harder to live for one's faith, especially when that faith calls for regular and continual sacrifice. But it's not only them, it's also the countless saints who believed alongside them. God has given us the resurrection, as well as the body of Christ, to encourage us when our legs may fail under the weight of doubt and uncertainty. Finally, as God granted Gideon victory, God grants us victory. He doesn't give us a, a victory, one of prosperity and good health, though some may enjoy prosperity and good health. This victory is one of new life. It is a life born again. It is a life free from oppression, not societal, societal oppression or cultural oppression, but oppression of sin, free from the bondage of our enemies, the flesh and the devil. A, a victory won by God, just as Gideon's victory was accomplished by God. God accomplished, God accomplished victory for us upon the cross by the blood of the Son of God. All we did was stand there in our place, in our sin. God did the work just as Gideon's army stood in their place. God did the work in the enemy's camp. It's the same. 
Because of that, new life has been granted to all who look to Christ, to all who trust in him. Colossians 2, 11, 15. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, the working of God, not yours, who raised Christ from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Right? You're dead. What can a dead body do? Nothing. It stinks. It rots. It can smell. That's it. But smell is a passive thing. You don't do that. It's just a byproduct of you not doing anything, of you being dead. Dead body can't do anything. A dead body can't raise a hand, sign a card, or say a prayer. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do that? Well, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, nailing it to Christ, nailing it to his one and only begotten son. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Another passage, Romans 6, 1, 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Thus, if your life doesn't look different than from before your salvation, you've got to wonder, are you actually walking in newness of life? Have you actually been buried with Christ and raised with Christ? And all this takes us back to the first thing given by God, the Spirit. Because we do this only by the Spirit, Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear or to fall back into sin, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Thus we who have been given victory over sin, we ought to live as such. 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit, not a fear, but of power and love and self-control. If the Spirit is in you, you have, you do not lack, you have power, love, and self-control. You do not lack self-control if the Spirit is in you. Those who God has, deliver, those who God has delivered from the bondage of sin will have marks of such freedom in their lives. They will not continue in willful sin, they will not continue to willfully live a life of oppression and death. They will be freed, and by the Spirit it will be evident. They, they will not have the Midianite army be defeated and, and stay in fear and not pursue them. They will pursue their sins. They will mortify the enemy. And this will happen. This will be seen. This will be known both in times of peace and prosperity and how they live their lives also in times of persecution and suffering. The fruits will allow us to know the tree. Salvation is not about believing merely what happened on the cross. Right? We get that confused. We often think, well, I believe what Jesus did on the cross, and thus I believe what happened, and I believe what occurred. That's it. That's salvation. It's not about that. Salvation is not about know this fact and don't forget it. 
Salvation is about living rightly with God because of what happened on the cross, at the cross. It, right? The demands were nailed to it, to, to the Son, so that we may live in a new life. We have been given victory to live as God intends for us to live, not for how we intend for us to live. And in living only as God intends for us to live, will we find the fulfillment that we are looking for, the purpose, the contentment. Only in his will do we find that, not in ours. Because there, that is where we find the well of living water that never runs dry, regardless of your circumstances. And that well will never cause us to thirst again. This is a well made available, not because we find ourselves, excuse me, not because we ourselves have found this well, or that we have dug this well, or that uh, by the intellect of our minds we have invented this magnificent well, but this is a well that's made available only by the grace and power of God. A life provided by His righteousness. When we, God clothes us in His Spirit, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Right? When, when I see another person wearing a, a Red Sox hat, I know what they love, Fenway Park. And I also know what they hate, the Yankees. But if they wear a Red Sox hat and they tell me that they don't hate the Yankees or they don't love Fenway Park, they're not a Red Sox fan. And in my zeal, I want to take that hat from them. They shouldn't be wearing it. And we get this. It's not just like with sports. It's other things. When people dress a certain way, we have assumptions made about it. There are certain expectations. When we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, well, we expect that person to love the things of Christ and to hate the things of Christ. And if you go, well, Jesus doesn't hate anything, read Revelation 2, right? Jesus commends the church because they hate the things that Jesus himself hates. God hates unholiness. He hates sin. But when a believer who says, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, willfully engages in sin, embraces the sin, and says, it's okay. Jesus died for, died for my sin. I can engage in sin. They don't know Christ. They're not clothed in the Spirit. The Spirit will put in your heart a hatred for all things sinful. That's what we should expect when somebody's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, with all this being said, recognizing that all of this, our salvation, our, our faithfulness, our holiness, it's all done by Christ. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Embrace the sweet exchange that he offers you. His righteous robes for your filthy rags. His holiness for your lawlessness. His faithfulness for your faithlessness. His love for your hate. His forgiveness for the judgment you rightly deserve. His imperishable life for your fading vapor. His grace, his glory, his eternal blessedness for you, not because of who you are or what you have done, but in spite of who you are and what you have done. And all of this is for his glory, and it's all done by his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace, your patience, your compassion, your willingness to love us with long-suffering um, endurance. We ask that your spirit would do the job that 
you have sent him to do to convict us as necessary to smash the idols of our lives, to help us to be aware of our sin, to help us mortify our sin. We ask that you would clothe us in the righteousness of your son, that we would be filled with the spirit, that we would love what he loves, hates what he hates, and that we would do this as one body in Christ here at Hope. Help us to be witnesses of this truth, not only here on Sundays where it's easy to do so, but also out there among those who are lost and, and in the presence of the enemy. Help us to go forth with courage and with strength. Help us to remember that the tomb is empty, that your son is, has been exalted, he has been raised, he is with you right now interceding on our behalf. I mean, we thank you, Father, that you've given us this word by your grace, that we're able to know these things, that we're able to be equipped by the knowledge of your word. Help us to come to your word daily. Help us to meditate on it day and night. Help us to take captive of every thought and make it obedient unto Christ. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to pray for those who don't know you. May you open up doors, soften hearts, Make the blind see, Father, so that as we go out and, and sow the seed of your word, that your word would take hold in the soils of those who have no growth yet, who do not know the, the grace that you have offered to them, Father. Father, as such, we ask that you would bless the bread and the cup this morning as we come to the table. We ask that you forgive us our sins, that you would help us to confess the sins that, that you've made known to us, that we would seek repentance, that we would come to the table, that we would be encouraged knowing that victory has been won, death has been conquered, that your son has done it all on the cross, that it is finished, and then that we come to this table not, not to earn anything, but to be reminded, to be encouraged, to be edified, and to give you praise. And that we would do all of this so that we would leave here seeking to live holy lives, Father until your son returns to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. Father, we thank you for all of these things. We thank you for this day. And Father, may we just never stop giving you praise and never stop thanking you for your unending grace, the love and the blessings of Jesus Christ. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, and by his blood, Amen.